Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Annika's coming up to 4 o'clock, thanks to Alan and Chris. Why Yemen is in crisis, I'll be speaking with Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. The Afghan Australian Development Organisation with volunteer Lynn Allison, formerly of the Australian Democrats. Part two of Chris Gaffney and the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. An update on Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association and Nobel Peace Prize winner in Norway. I can. I'll be speaking with Professor Tillman Ruff and also about his visit to Korea to the demilitarised zone on the way back. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen increases by the day and no matter how many people and organisations speak out against the horror of the situation, little is done to stop the carnage and bring relief to the millions of Yemenis. Grassroots activists in many countries are trying to get their voices heard and condemning the attempted genocide. And in recent weeks there have been two actions in the US, one a blockade in New York City in early December and the second a month later on the 11th of January in Maryland. Brian Terrell is a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. He was one of 15 arrested at the gathering in New York City, handcuffed, transported to the cells of the 7th Precinct on the city's east side. But why Yemen and why is this small country so important to Saudi Arabia, the US and its allies? That was the first question I put to Brian. I think it's a big part of it for the United States' interest in it is it's a uh, good market for its weapons. It was something that uh, President Trump was praised even by many of his critics for the great deals that he was able to to make selling U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, the other countries that are involved in the coalition that is uh, that is making war on Yemen. It has to do, too, I think, with the power struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and it's not clear how much Iran actually has to do with it, but it's it's uh, just the um, you know the fear that there'd be a uh, nation that is has friendly, even having friendly relations with with Iran is difficult for the United States and its allies to handle. It was interesting that that, that Nikki Haley brought up. Uh, one of the two missiles, only two missiles have been fired into Saudi Arabia, and that's terrible. I don't, uh, that's a very frightening thing, and it shouldn't be happening. And apparently, at least one of these missiles, she had, thought she had proof that this had come from Iran, whether it was supplied by the Iranian government or smuggled through or something is something that is unclear as well. But making a huge thing out of these two bombs that, uh, two missiles that didn't, injure anyone versus the thousands of bombs, bombs that are falling every day that have killed, you know, directly by by the conflict, more than 12,000 people that we know have come 
from Saudi Arabia and originally from the United States and the United Kingdom. You know, this is not controvertible at all. You know, there's, there's no question that this is happening, that these weapons are being provided by the United States and UK on, on, a, on a huge level. Many American corporations and American billionaires are making a lot of money off of this. And it's not just that so many people have died. It's the fact that they're just destroying the whole infrastructure of the country. Yes, it's been hospitals and water treatment and things in one of the poorest countries in the world that uh, even before this war was you know, very struggling to, to develop and to, to, to care for its people. And, and this is uh, really a great tragedy and a great crime what's happening there. What has your group been able to do to protest in the last while? I'm thinking about this. Is that there's a, a saying, you know, that, that I'm sure you have too about preaching to the choir, and it is. But I think right now, very much, that we need to get the, the peace movement and people who are uh, aware of other things and the people who will take action. It's surprising how few people know what's going on in Yemen, and I really do believe that the little bits of direct action that people like uh, our organization, Voices Creative Nonviolence, Code Pink, and the Catholic Worker, especially in New York City, has been doing, has had an effect of bringing this a little bit to the public attention. And there's still so much more that we need to do. Voices together with the uh, Catholic Worker in New York and other friends there back in April during Holy Week, we had a... Uh, week-long fast, and we're outside across the street from the uh, United Nations for most of the day, you know, for seven days, with signs and banners and with street drama, you know, speaking to the diplomats and to the um, tourists who would be, be coming there. And then we would also have a procession each day to the U.S. mission to the United Nations and the Saudi mission to the U.N. And one day we went a little bit further and went to, to Trump Tower, which these days is private hotels and casinos and golf courses seem to be the seats of power as much or more than the government buildings that we've, we've gone to before. And last month I was in New York again. The, New York, the Catholic workers and their friends had a vigil every Saturday at Union Square or some other place in New York City informing people about Yemen and calling for an end to the war. And then in uh, December, I was in New York, was there for a group of, we had another rally at the park across the street from the United Nations, and then we went to the U.S. mission to the United Nations. I think there were probably more than 100 people present, and uh, a group of, I believe, 11 of us blocked the doorway to the uh, U.S. mission to the United Nations. It was a very small, very uh, symbolic blockade. No one died. No one was threatened. Nobody missed their lunch or anything, much less experienced famine or cholera because of because of our blockade. But uh, it's interesting that the authorities dealt with our little crime much more quickly and more decisively than they were about the the crimes, the war crimes being committed against the people of Algamen and based out of that very building. So, yes, a group of us were arrested and jailed for several hours and will be uh, apparently having a trial coming up sometime in the next month. What's the charge? I believe it's disorderly conduct, but we were we were very orderly and <laughs> and I think a, uh, our defense will be very easy to make 
whether it will be successful or not is is another question. And also, we were a part, Kathy Kelly of Voices and I were last week in Washington, D.C. for an event, an annual event, unfortunately, these last years of uh, Witness Against Torture, which is protesting the continuation of the prison at Guantanamo, for which the 41 people who are left there, even though many of them have been cleared for release and, in fact, declared innocent of any crimes, uh, none of whom have had a fair trial, if any trial at all. Now President Trump says we'll be there indefinitely, forever, that no one should be released anymore. But we've, the Witness Against Torture pulls in other other issues, and one thing that we found out about the back in June, the AP had a article about how the United Arab Emirates is maintaining a prison, a, a series of prisons, I believe 18 secret prisons in Yemen, at which very convincing allegations have been made that torture is being used there, and American interrogators are there, and they don't deny that torture is going on there. They say they don't know, but they have been, American interrogators have been interrogating prisoners in these in these uh, secret prisons after they have been subjected to, to torture by UAE authorities. And so as a part of this, we went to the uh, UAE's United Arab Emirates, their, their embassy in Washington, D.C., people wearing orange jumpsuits and black, and black hoods representing the kind of universal symbol of people in prison. That's about an hour lined up in front of the embassy, and uh, Kathy and I tried to deliver a letter to the ambassador that nobody would accept, so we put it in the mail the next day. And uh, then, too, there have been some very interesting legislative efforts to invoke the War Powers Act. Of course, the United States is not in any, in any way in a state of war with Yemen. It's involved not only with supplying the weapons, selling the weapons, but also key is the Saudi and UAE bombers are being fueled in flight by U.S. planes, clear violation of the War Powers Act. And there are several members of the U.S. Congress and of both parties who have been making initiatives to illegally stop the U.S. participation in this war. Then on, uh, yes, last Thursday, Kathy was with a group of people who sat in at a representative from the state of Maryland at his office in the Senate House building, or the, the, the U.S. House building, the office building, and were arrested trying to get the, that representative to join in on these efforts to block U.S. participation in this war. So there are several you know, small and creative efforts being made. So much more needs to be done, and just really hope that our small efforts will deliver, will, will develop into something more. This is a, a catastrophe that just is, you know, cholera is, is rampant. Millions of people on the edge of, of starvation and the... Uh, uh, almost no help from the outside is allowed to get come in. Now, President Trump did call on, people make much of this, that President Trump did call on the um, Saudi government to lift the blockade and to allow not only humanitarian aid, but also just trade, commercial trade as well, to be unhindered. But it was a very unique thing for President Trump to 
very politely request something, not his usual bombast. And so I think it's a, a very weak and tepid request was made that, that uh, the Saudis not starve the country of Yemen. And, uh, you know, that certainly is not enough for him. We know that he's capable of speaking more forcefully than he, than he has in this case. But then you have to remember the, the trade in weapons between the two countries. He doesn't want to upset that too much. No, no. And I can't help but think there was another several billion dollars of weapon sales for uh, fighter planes with the country of Bahrain. And Bahrain is a part of the, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council that's, that's waging this war. And Bahrain is a country of less than a million people, and it is only five miles by 20 miles. I've been there going to Saudi Arabia by a 20-kilometer bridge, and the only time it's been invaded was, was by the Saudis, uh, an invitation of the king of Bahrain to put down the Arab Spring protests in 2011. And I believe that the, that the Saudi army is still, in a sense, occupying that country. So they really don't need fighter planes. It's kind of, so even that is, the, you know, the arms, that's really another way of just covering up the sails to Saudi Arabia. It makes it look, spread it out on the sheet. But they're being used in Air Force of Bahrain as acting in total concert with Saudi Air Force. When you think of the, the suffering of the people of the whole Middle East since 2001, and even going back further than that for Iraq, it's um, a terrible time in history. It is, and it's, it's, I think of it as, I know I saw the statistic that the median age in Afghanistan, for example, is just a few months over 18 years old, and the country has been occupied by U the U.S., for 16 of those years, so you know, more than half of the people of Afghanistan were babies or not even born yet when all of this started. Uh, and before that, the civil wars and the Russia's war with, uh, with Afghanistan and, and all these places where just basic nutrition and education has been thwarted for generations and uh, populations where every citizen you know, has suffered great traumas. We do see some signs of hope and some signs of people, you know, resilience and people building community and coming up with some great creative ways to make things better for themselves and their children. But it's just very difficult to, as, as this grinds on, longer and longer and longer, you know, the solutions seem farther and farther away. Just take you back to Guantanamo, the prisoners there, there's still 41 what do you know about the men who are there? We know that uh, at least five of them have been cleared for release. You know, many of the people, there were more than 700 people brought to Guantanamo, and these are the only ones left because most of them were not picked up by U.S. forces. They pretty much had a, had a bounty out for, uh, you know, if you... People who could turn in their, their neighbors or somebody they didn't like would be given, given enough money to support their family for years. And it was very tempting. So, and, and also there, there are people with confused, you know, the mistaken names, mistaken identities. And also there were people who were actually taking arms against U.S. forces, but they were defending their homes. They've, 
have no idea what the politics are and everything. They just know that there's an invader. So many of these people are, by any stretch, innocent. One of the tragedies is that some of the people who are there, I don't know what the number is, but are have been called the forever prisoners. And they will not go to trial because they found out that there isn't anything to try them for. But they're being held because it's said that they were have been radicalized in their years in prison. In other words, we're, we're going to hold the idea is the United States is committed to holding these people in prison the rest of their lives who are innocent, who are known to be innocent, but because of what we're afraid of what they might do to us if we let them go. And that's a very uh, frightening moral conundrum, isn't it? To hold an innocent person in prison because of what they're what they might do in their rage if they were allowed to after they've been separated from their families subjected to torture no these are people who badly they need to be freed and they need to be compensated for and they need to be be given treatment and be, be cared for now we, we owe them a great debt and what they're getting instead is continuing to live you know in a state of you know lifetime of imprisonment and that's Brian Tyrrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. He's also a member of Witnesses Against Torture. I'll be back in a moment with Kate Lewis, but first um, just to let you know that there'll be more of Brian on the program next week. Join 3CR for our Invasion Day broadcast on January 26th. Tune into 3CR between 11am and 4pm for our Treaty Now special broadcasts. Next, our monthly look at issues pertaining to Western Sahara, the country on the north-west part of Africa, occupied by Morocco. And I'm speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. First up, Kate, an issue important for Western Sahara, which you've talked about many times, and that's the theft from Western Sahara's fishing grounds along its coast by Morocco. Fishing grounds also important to other African countries. Trade between EU and Morocco, according to advice from the EU Advocate General is illegal. It needs to be put in a nutshell because it's quite long and complicated. But yes, the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice was invited by a British court to give an opinion on the issue of the European Union's fishing agreement with Morocco. This is an agreement that has been on and off quite a bit and it has been suspended before now. It has sometimes been suspended because of concern about the fish stocks, but the current one was due to be renewed in July. So it's rather timely that this opinion has now been issued. It needs to be corroborated by a full court's decision 
but he has definitely said that the fishing agreement with Morocco should not include Western Sahara because that is a separate territory that is not part of Morocco. In UN speak, it's a non-self-governing territory that is a country that's waiting to be decolonized. It's the last colony of Africa. And as such, any agreement that the European Union might make with Morocco cannot include Western Sahara. Uh, perhaps I should explain why they thought it might include Western Sahara is because Morocco has occupied this country for the past 40 years and because the fish are abundant on the coast of Western Sahara and pretty well fished out on the Moroccan coast. So when they call it a Moroccan fishing deal, it's actually a Western Sahara fishing deal because that's the place where they will be wanting to fish. Is there any idea of how much fish that Morocco has stolen in this way? And does it also preclude Western Saharan fisher people from actually going out into that ocean and fishing for themselves? I don't think so, no. It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't stop any Western Sahara people from fishing. I couldn't estimate the number of tonnes that have been... Uh, fished over the years, but it certainly must be a lot. They said that 91 point something percent of the fish catch, the fish caught under this agreement, were from that coast on Western Sahara. Somewhere, I'm sure it must be recorded how many tons are fished every year. But there are also agreements with Russia. I think there might be a Korean fishing fleet as well. They're not the only people fishing on that coast. Last time when there was a ban on fishing there because of the depleted fish stocks, the fishermen went down to Mauritania and there was then another problem for Mauritania because there's a marine park there where you're not allowed to fish because it's a sanctuary for the fish and they were intruding into that marine park to fish because they couldn't do it further north. So uh, it's a big dilemma for everybody, really, because we are all being advised to eat more fish for our health and less meat, but really the world can't sustain this degree of hunting the oceans for the fish and and seafoods. Especially the Spaniards, really, uh, their culture is built very much around seafood and and fish. As for the Sahrawis, they have got used to eating fish since they've been living in towns, but the traditions of their, um, their, their cultural traditions are based around herding animals, nomadic herding, and camel meat and goat meat and lamb, and, and those meats are really their tradition rather than fish. I'm wondering whether a decision on Morocco and EU that it's illegal could have any impact on the agreements between Russia and Korea and Morocco. Well, yes, it would be um, very interesting uh, to to extend it that way, yes. uh, We we do wait for the full court to make its decision on the Advocate General's advice. They are legally empowered not to take that advice should they wish not to. So yes, we 
But uh, but yes, of course, it applies to every. It really applies to every resource that Morocco is trading in that comes from Western Sahara, and that would include the phosphate, which Australian farmers have been using on their farms for many years. Not actually in the last 12 months. Turns out that two of the phosphate fertilizer companies have suspended their imports from Western Sahara, and the third one, Insatec Pivot, has not been importing for a whole year, although they have, they are still justifying what they did and what they might do in the future. They're not willing to say that they wouldn't ever do it, uh, import it in the future at this stage. But we're still hoping that they will come to the point where they can make that statement that it's, uh, that they recognize that it's not, uh, the right for, um, material to have until the self-determination is determined in Western Sahara. You'd think also on their minds might be the fact that if they continued this trade that their ship might be impounded? Oh yes, that did, does help to focus the mind a bit, I think, of the prospective importers because last year a ship was seized, the cargo was seized in um, South Africa and that matter has not been fully resolved. As far as I know, the ship is still in port since the 1st of May with this seized cargo. So they don't think they would ever take the route via South Africa. The alternatives would be to go through the Panama Canal, but another shipload got seized there, so that's also not open to them. So the options are closing down. The other way to go around the Cape Horn is longer and therefore more costly, and so maybe it's more economic for them to find other sources for their product. And the cost of those impounded ships, surely? Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, I think there's a dispute going on between the insurer and the, uh, and the company importing from New Zealand about who's going to pay that bill. There's two invitations going out, Kate, and the first one is in February and the, the second is April or October. What's happening in February? In February in Melbourne, there's going to be a celebration of the Sahrawi National Day on the 27th of February. It's being held in the Ithacan Club on Elizabeth Street in the city centre and uh, everybody's very welcome to come along. It should be a good evening. There will be musical entertainment provided by some Greek musicians, a dinner catered for by the ASRC, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is very uh, highly regarded uh, as food. Uh, it will be a vegetarian feast, we say. And, yeah, so it should be very good. There is a, a try booking. If you want to book, it's on try booking slash TNMP, trybooking.com slash TNMP in caps. And that will take you through to the, the booking form online. And what is the significance of the 27th of February? What happened on that day? Ah, now that's the day that, that they declared the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, S-A-D-R in English. 
And what had happened was that instead of organizing this referendum of self-determination I referred to earlier, Spain, the European colonizer, just withdrew. And then Morocco invaded. The day after the Spanish withdrew, they withdrew on the 26th, the 27th, the uh, Polisario Front, the National Liberation Organization, declared uh, their republic. They did it in their territory towards the, um, the border, out of the combat zone. Since then, uh, they, they've been setting up a state in exile in refugee camps in Algeria, and they've got really a fully-fledged state in exile that could take over as soon as they've had a, a vote. And that's been the case for many years now. So it's really um, time that this matter got resolved. And that's where the Australian study tour will be going? Yes. So this, uh, later uh, in April, or if, if we don't get an... If, the, if that's too short notice for some people, we might try and do it in October. There would be a, a study tour for anybody interested, but the, particularly interested in uh, attracting journalists and filmmakers and politicians, writers, anybody like that, who will come and see the Sahrawi refugee camps for themselves. They will meet Sahrawis. They will meet all the uh, people in the different organizations, particularly women's organizations, because for they're a real um, pioneer of the women's movement in an Arab country and uh, a Muslim country. There will also be a visit to see the military wall that divides the western part of Western Sahara from the held by Morocco from the eastern part that is held by the Polisario Front. And that's uh, staffed by 120,000 troops. So there's a very big investment in terms of personnel by the Moroccans, but it's also important to realize that it is a military occupation because Morocco likes to make it appear that it's all completely normal, and that's why they like these trade agreements, for example, to make it all appear as if it's business as normal and that there's nothing, nothing happening. But, in fact, there's very severe repression of the Sahrawis who have very few human rights in uh, living for those people living still under Moroccan occupation. And I'd imagine too that the, the trade agreements um, taking the resources from Morocco helps pay for all those soldiers and uh, obviously their families on that border. Well, I expect so, yes, exactly. Wouldn't be cheap. And, um, no, no, that's true, absolutely. Initially, the earlier king, the father of the present king, was very nervous about there being a coup because he actually did, there were a couple of attempted coups uh, to over, overturn his, his, him and his regime. And so he thought it was a very good occupation for soldiers to go way away and, <laughs> and uh, look after this military wall. But uh, I don't know that there's an immediate risk of overthrowing the present king, although there is growing discontent with his regime, especially in the north of Morocco. On to so-called sport, and we, I'm think, 
suppose most people would remember the the photos of the so-called Paris-Dakar race, the the dust storms, and the it's right through Africa where they just I'd say were very destructive races. And now they've got one called the Eco Africa race, which follows the same route as the the one that no longer happens. What's the connection with Western Sahara? Oh well, it goes for, uh, through Morocco and through Western Sahara down to Mauritania and and finishes in Senegal. In order to get there, it does have to cross this military wall and go into territory that is held by the Polisario Front. In the past, that's often been quite controversial. The um, in what one year the Sahrawis were actually mobilising their army to resist this, this car race, and that's when the official Paris Dakar, which I think is still called the Paris Dakar, but it takes place in, they, they decided to move, and they went, not only moved the route within Africa, but they moved continent to uh, South America. That's been the problem. They've done the, the uh, all the arrangements with Morocco itself, and none of the arrangements have involved the Sahrawi authorities. And so that was what the pro- their protest was about. This year, there were some rumblings, but they didn't, the Sahrawis didn't actually try to stop the rally going through. However, they have put some army there because Morocco is, again, trying to normalize things, make it all appear very normal so that there can be trucks passing from Morocco through to Mauritania without any problems and so they want to tarmac the road all the way and the bit through this little area that is held by Polisario is not tarmacked and that's what the dispute has been about but that's it sounds very petty but that sort of miniature uh, you know is, is a vignette of the whole problem that they don't have the right to do that because they don't have the right to be in Western Sahara at all. And is that similar with the kite surf competition? Well, yes, that's another thing that they do to try and and make it business as usual. They um, promote tourism in Western Sahara, but particularly in the furthest southern, most southerly uh, city called Dakhla. There, there's a big spit of land that comes down to the uh, sea and um, on the inland side of that spit of land is this big lagoon which turns out to be absolutely ideal apparently for kite surfing and so they've built these little uh, sort of, uh, well the French call them holiday colonies, you know, the the little uh, places, little resorts that's the English word I think little resorts for people to stay often with little huts uh, dotted around uh, or so there are some hotels too I think and they promote that as a, as a fun thing but they say there's never any mention of the fact that they are in an occupied country so again the supporters of the Sahrawi's right for self-determination they remind these promoters that they are taking tourists into an occupied country but 
our colleagues in New Zealand wrote to the promoter of a particular event that's coming up is actually sort of trials for an international kite surfing competition asked what his policy was on you know doing this in in Western Sahara and he said oh we're a sporting organization not a political organization so uh, they like to try and sidestep this issue completely and yet of course it's a political gesture to treat it as if it were business as normal because that's immediately taking Morocco's side in this dispute. Finally, Kate, the UN, what's the UN been doing to try and facilitate peace and self-determination for Western Sahara? Well, the UN is at a bit of a turning point. They've got a new Secretary-General of the UN, uh, Antonio Guterres, who's a Portuguese, so we've always been hopeful that because the Portuguese ended up facilitating East Timor's passage to democracy, we're hoping that they, he will understand the need for Spain to take this kind of role with Western Sahara. That's the first hope. The second hope is he's got a new personal envoy for Western Sahara, the former president of Germany called uh, Horst Köhler. He's had a lot of experience in Africa and has apparently good relations with many countries in Africa, including Rwanda. And that's relevant because the new president of the African Union, who will come into office at the end of this month, I think, is, is Rwanda. And Curler went and visited Kagame, who's the president of Rwanda, to talk about, well, he said many things, but I think it was, uh, it, it was said, that a spokesman did uh, concede that they were talking about the way in which they could deal with the Western Sahara issue because uh, the African Union had been a kind of partner with the United Nations in the past, but lately Morocco had been trying to sideline the African Union's role. But now, that was partly because Morocco had walked out of the African Union over the very issue of Western Sahara. Now they've come back in, and and so they are not in a position to just try and boycott what the African Union's doing. And I think there's some hope that maybe the African Union can be quite a key player in moving towards a peaceful settlement. Well, that may be a good place to finish, Kate. Well, it's always good on a note of hope. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, thanks, Jan. And that, of course, was Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And if you're listening or you're interested in the scrumptious feast that they're going to have on the 27th of February at 329 Elizabeth Street in the city. I think it's on the second floor. It's a Asylum Seeker Resource Centre feast, and we have been to one before, and the food is absolutely wonderful. If you'd like to book for that evening, it's through trybooking.com backslash 
capital T-N-N-P. So that's trybooking.com, backslash, capital T-N-N-P. And you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. You could be listening on your old analogue, 8.55am, or your new digital, or you could be listening on your computer, either streaming live or podcast on and it's all on 3cr.org.au. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. As I mentioned last week in the lead-up to the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Chris Gaffney, 3CR broadcaster and activist, began a series of interviews which were to culminate in the revolution, its aftermath and the demise of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. Unfortunately, ill health prevented Chris from concluding his talks on Tuesday home time at that time, but a number of years ago he recorded as part of the Victorian Labor College lecture series lectures regarding the Russian Revolution. So today the second part of his talk on the Russian Revolution, Lenin to Stalin and beyond. Kronstadt. A week before the 10th Congress of the Party in 1921, an uprising of sailors broke out in the Kronstadt Fortress. The Kronstadt sailors had been the stoutest defenders of the Bolsheviks, and yet even opponents of the Bolsheviks agreed that the revolt should be put down. Why? Because Kronstadt 1921 was not Kronstadt 1917. Its class composition had changed. Its socialist workers, now spread all over Russia defending the revolution, were replaced by peasants, whose devotion to the revolution was that of their class. And this comes out in their demands, the chief of which were Soviets without Bolsheviks, and a free market in agriculture. The latter is easily seen as a peasant demand, but the former is too, for the Bolsheviks were the only consistent supporters of the Soviets. They alone stood consistently for the socialist collective aims of the working class in the revolution. These demands of Kronstadt would have meant liquidation of the socialist aims without a struggle. Kronstadt was not, as some claim, an attack on the socialist content of the revolution, but a desperate attempt to prevent peasant opposition destroying the collective aims of the revolution. Kronstadt was a warning. It questioned the leading role of the working class in the revolution. Concessions to the peasantry were thus required, and this the new economic policy did. Many of the peasant demands were accepted, which allowed a limited range of freedom to private commodity production while maintaining a strong centralised socialist state apparatus. Changes in the party The working class had been demoralised and fragmented, and this was also true of the Workers' Party. It too had changed. The men who had made the 1917 revolution by 1919 were only 10% of the party, and by 1922 they were only 2.5%. The party grew, of course, and although there was a tendency for all militant workers to join it, many of the people who joined the party had little or no socialist conviction. 
This dilution of the party was paralleled by developments in the state. The Bolsheviks had been forced to use thousands of members of the old Tsarist bureaucracy in order to maintain a governmental machine. The Bolsheviks provided the overall direction, but old pre-revolutionary attitudes and elitism towards the masses often prevailed. In 1922, Lenin remarked, Who is leading who? The 4,700 responsible communists? Or the mass of bureaucrats? Or the other way round? I do not believe you can honestly say the communists are leading this mass. To put it honestly, they are not the leaders, but the lead. End of quote. And in the countryside, Bolsheviks were placed in an environment of hostile class forces and bureaucratic inertness, attempts to raise a peasant army and dealing with small traders, kulaks, that is the rich peasants, and the small capitalists. This immediate but limited cooperation with them was often more tangible than their links with a weak and demoralised working class. Bureaucratic modes in the state spread into similar methods in the party. The party of necessity had to act in many situations in place of the class, and so it required an iron discipline within its ranks. Formal factions in the party were temporarily banned at the 10th Congress in 1921, although discussion was to continue within the party. This demand for internal cohesion easily degenerated into bureaucracy in the party. By 1922, Lenin could write, We have a bureaucracy not only in the Soviet institutions, but in the institutions of the party. End of quote. The erosion of inner party democracy can be seen in the fate of successive oppositions to the central leadership. Lenin himself was in a minority on several occasions, and divisions within the party over the role of the trade unions were openly discussed in the press, and as late as 1921, the program of the workers' opposition was printed by the party itself. In 1923, the left opposition, led by Trotsky, could still express its views in Pravda, although there was a preponderance of pro-leadership material. Bureaucracy was best seen in the triumphant of Kamenev, Zinoviev and Stalin, which took over the party leadership during Lenin's illness. When Zinoviev controlled the Leningrad party, he controlled all the delegates, and when he moved into opposition to Stalin, along with Kamenev and Lenin's wife Krupsaya, so did his delegates. By 1923, not only had the workers' position relative to the peasant declined, but also his role in management of industry declined. In 1922, 65% of managerial personnel were workers, and 35% were non-workers. Next year, only 36% were workers, and 64% were non-workers. These red industrialists began to emerge as privileged groups with high salaries and powers like the power to hire and fire at will, which was inconsistent with the workers' control of industry. In attempting to hold together the young Soviet Republic in the chaos of invasion, civil war, counter-revolution and famine, the socialist intentions determined the course of history. But these intentions were often in a social framework that was hostile to the democratic, collectivist aims of socialism. Accommodation and deals with peasants, bureaucrats and mediating between different social classes was bound to reflect itself within the party itself and party factions began to define their socialist aspirations in terms of the interests of different classes. The only genuinely socialist class, the working class, was the weakest, most disorganised and the least able to exert pressures. Factions in the party. Let's look at some of the factions within the party. After 1920 it was called the Communist Party. 
and the social forces behind them. First, the left opposition. This faction adhered most closely to the revolutionary socialist traditions of Bolshevism. It saw workers' democracy as central to socialism and refused to forego the world revolution for the reactionary chauvinist slogan of building socialism, quote, in one country. The left opposition had three central planks outlined in the new course written by Trotsky and published in 1923. 1. The socialist revolution could only make progress if the economic weight of the towns and industry as against the country and agriculture was increased. This led to the demand for planning in industry and discrimination against the wealthy peasant in taxation policy who, if not controlled, could by reason of his economic power subordinate the state to his interests. 2. This industrial development had to be accompanied by increased workers' democracy so as to earn bureaucratic tendencies in the party and the state. 3. Both these policies would enable Russia to remain as a citadel of the revolution. But Russia alone could not produce that material and cultural level that is a prerequisite of socialism. This demanded the extension of the revolution to at least several advanced capitalist countries. Economically, this program was possible. And in fact, industrialization and squeezing of the kulaks was carried out in 1928 by Stalin in a bureaucratic and ruthless manner that contradicted the intentions of the opposition in 1923. However, the class that provided the social basis of the left opposition, the working class, was struck by unemployment, only one, over one and three quarter million in 1923 to four. And its most militant workers had either died in the civil war or been lifted into the bureaucracy. Added to this, the fact that much of the class was composed of peasants fresh from the countryside. And we find a class that was too tired and dispirited to fight. It was the balance of social forces, not economics, that prevented the party adopting the platform of the left opposition. The opposition to it consisted of two different social forces. The first was made up of those elements who did not see concessions of the peasants as being detrimental to socialist construction. They wanted the party to adjust its program to the needs of the peasantry, and they found their theoretical expression in Buchanan, with his call to the peasants to, quote, enrich themselves. Who supported Stalin? The second tendency that opposed the left opposition drew its strength as much from the social forces within the party as outside, and in the main it was constituted by elements of the party apparatus itself, whose whole orientation was to maintain party cohesion through bureaucratic means. Its chief spokesman was the head of the party apparatus, Joseph Stalin. Stalin, the son of a shopmaker, attended a seminary in his youth. He was appreciated for his practical organising ability, although Lenin commented that, quote, he lacks the most elementary honesty, and Trotsky said of his intellectual efforts, he is the greatest mediocrity in our party. His role in 1970 was secondary, although Stalin remedied this by rewriting the history of the revolution to give himself a starring role, and his opponents of later years, virtually all of Lenin's associates, a non-existent or malevolent place. With the decimation of the working class, the low level of culture, the reliance on experts, technicians and planners that this necessitated, factory managers, careerists, opportunists, and a whole battery of party functionaries, forced to take responsibilities and decisions as a matter of necessity during the Civil War, now regarded it as a right, and workers' democracy as a hindrance to its exercise. During the 1920s, the entrenched bureaucrats began to accord themselves material privileges. 
The theoretical justification for this inequality was embodied in the Soviet Constitution of 1936 by the motto, To Each According to His Work. This was a comment on what had been established for some time before and constituted an explicit revision of Marx's formula, each according to their needs. This unequal norm of distribution is not a socialist norm, which the Constitution claim, but it was one gauged according to output. The judge of the value of this output of work was the bureaucrat, who rewarded the intellectuals, the officials, the managers, and of course themselves, in grossly disproportionate amounts. By 1935, the ratio of salaries of high-ranking engineers to those of janitors, porters, and night watchmen was 20 to 1. The triumph of the bureaucracy. The decimation of the working class and the increasing hollowness of the organs of working class democracy, the Soviets, left power in the state, the army, the police and the factory in the hands of bureaucrats. The bureaucrats began to deal with those elements that still adhere to the revolutionary socialist tradition. The first confrontation was with the left opposition in 1923, whose chief spokesperson was Leon Trotsky. Abuse replaced debate, while control of the Secretariat of the Party over appointments was used for the first time to remove sympathisers of the left opposition from their posts. With such bureaucratic manoeuvres came ideological myths to justify such procedures. One was the cult of Leninism, which was bitterly opposed by Lenin's wife, as it elevated Lenin into a semi-divine being who was never wrong. The other was Trotskyism, supposedly opposed to Leninism, which was justified by odd quotes from Lenin of 10, 20 and even longer years ago, while ignoring Lenin's last statements, which described Trotsky as the most able member of the Central Committee and called for the removal of Stalin. Zinoviev, an ally of Stalin at the time, later admitted that these myths were fostered to ward off threats to their control of the party. The bureaucracy saw theory simply as the language of its own ambitions and growing privileges. By 1925, the alliance of Stalin, Zinoviev and the right-wing peasant supporters had defeated the left opposition. Zinoviev, although an ally, controlled the Leningrad section of the bureaucracy with some degree of independence from the rest of the apparatus. As such, he represented an obstacle to the central bureaucracy and was removed from his leaving position in the party. With the fall of Zinoviev, he and Kamenev turned to the historical traditions of the party, now represented by the left opposition. In the meantime, Stalin completes the job of packing all the party secretaries with his creatures, and by 1926 he is master of the party and announces his new policy of, quote, socialism in one country. This revision of a very basic tenet of both Marxism and the Bolshevik Party reflected not the global interests of Soviet society nor of the world's workers, but of a particular social layer in that society, which is characterised by a basically conservative attitude to the world situation and by a desire to maintain the international status quo. The Soviet Union is no longer seen as an instrument of furthering world revolution, which would have strengthened and relieved the Soviet working class. Rather, the international communist movement is viewed as an instrument to further the twists and turns of Soviet diplomacy. The various communist parties, who each conducted their own witch hunts against Trotskyism, had to ruthlessly sacrifice the militancy, consciousness and self-confidence of the working class of their respective countries. 
This slavish following of Stalin's policies led to defeat after defeat for the working class. In China, 1927, Germany, 1928 to 1933, France, 1936, and brought the Soviet Union to near collapse in the Second World War. The bureaucracy is instinctively afraid of an upsetting of the international status quo, not only for psychological reasons, which reflect its fundamentally conservative nature in Soviet society, but also because it feared, and still fears, the profound transformation which an extension of the international revolution would provoke, both in the political apathy of the Soviet working class and in the international relationship of forces inside the world communist movement. By 1936, Stalin could say that, quote, it was a tragic comic misunderstanding to attribute to the Soviet Union plans and intentions of world revolution. End of quote. By 1928, the Stalinist faction had consolidated its control in the party and the state. When Buchanan and the right wing split from it, horrified at what they created, they found themselves with even less strength than the left had had. The bureaucracy had usurped the gains of the revolutionary working class, but the peasantry at this stage remained unaffected. A mass refusal of the peasants to sell their grain brought this home to the bureaucracy. This assertion of the power of the towns over the countryside, which the left opposition had been demanding for years, was in its spirit the opposite of what the proposal of the left had decided some years earlier. The left had argued that peasant production must be subordinate to worker-owned industry in the towns. It was the rich peasant who was to provide the capital for the rebuilding and industrialization of the Soviet state. But industry in the towns by 1928 was no longer worker-controlled, but controlled by the bureaucracy, who sought control amidst great suffering over the last part of society outside its control. The first five-year plan began in 1928. Again, this had been advocated by the left opposition some five years earlier. Industrialisation was begun, as was the complete expropriation of the peasantry, the so-called collectivisation. Peasants slaughtered their own stock rather than hand them over to the state, whose methods by now were well known. This led to starvation and immense suffering, which was entirely avoidable. Midst the debacles and betrayals of revolution in China and Europe, the Stalinist bureaucracy tightens its grip over Soviet society. It hounds, persecutes and kills all who by their presence inside and outside Russia constitute a link to the revolutionary traditions of October. Trotsky's son mysteriously falls from a Paris building. Trotsky's secretary is murdered. Trotsky is hounded from country to country by Soviet pressure as he unceasingly exposes the lies of Moscow and is finally murdered by an assassin in Mexico in 1940. But not before the remaining Marxist-Leninists established the Fourth International in 1938, the founding program of which is the Transitional Program. The 30s also sees the great frame-up trials of the surviving old Bolsheviks, men who Lenin knew and worked with over a period of decades, Tomsky, Bukharin, Zinoviev, Rykov, Kamenev and hundreds of others are accused of being saboteurs, murderers, murderers and agents of the Gestapo and convicted on their own forced confessions. Photos are doctored, history books banned or rewritten to suit the current needs of the bureaucracy. 
Each month brings fresh accusations and executions of men who were not abject enough, or who, who, or who could remember what it was like before Stalin, and thousands simply vanished from view without explanation or trial. From the Bolshevik object, as stated by Lenin, quoting, we shall see the progressive withering away of the state, and the Soviet state will not be a state like the others, but a vast workers' commune, end of quote. To Stalin's rewriting of Marxism, we advance towards the abolition of the state by way of strengthening of the state, end of quote. What then should our attitude be to the late Soviet Union? Were all the gains of the October Revolution negated by the degeneration of the workers' state? The principal gain of the revolution remained until 1989, namely the nationalised property relations. The principle of socialist planning had shown its ability to recall results in production unheard of in a short space of time. From 1925 to 1932, the industrial production of Germany diminished one and a half times. In America, twice. In the Soviet Union, it increased four times. Today, despite the bureaucracy, the loss of 20 million men in the Second World War and the destruction of Soviet industry, the Soviet Union was the most, second most powerful country on earth. This bureaucracy that, that inhabited the Soviet Union could not be called a class because it has a dual and contradictory character. On the one hand, its existence depended upon the preservation of the nationalised property relations in which it plays merely a parasitic role. Accordingly, it will defend these relations, although this will only be done in a way which corresponds to its own power and privileges. At the same time, its role is conservative, both internationally and locally, because it rests upon the passivity of the Soviet working class. Time for the bureaucracy ran out, as successful revolutions elsewhere threatened Soviet hegemony over the world's communist parties. There were worker revolts in East Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia and Poland, and the growth of dissidents within the Soviet Union, allowing the bourgeoisie to stage the counter-coup they did in the late 80s, and the Soviet Union died. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for those lectures. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. I occasionally speak on the program with members of Voices for Creative Nonviolence about the conditions in Afghanistan and their work supporting young people and women in that war-torn country. Today, an Australian organisation working in Afghanistan as the Afghan-Australian Development and Rehabilitation Organisation. One of those involved is former Democrat Senator Lynn Allison. And when I spoke with her a couple of days ago, I asked her about the beginnings of this organisation, who was there at that time. 
The group was uh, set up by Nuria Soleil, who's a radiologist, and she's worked at, um, in, in a Melbourne hospital for many, many years in this country. She trained in Australia, and uh, almost as soon as she arrived, she recognised that uh, uh, Afghans were coming to Australia as refugees, and she assisted by setting up a restaurant and uh, giving them uh, their first start in the country, some employment, um, a base, and she continues to support the diaspora, the group of Afghans who uh, arrived in Australia over many years. Initially, she was uh, she was doing it all on her own, and she recognised that there was a need to set up an organisation which could receive monies for programs. Because she's an Afghan woman, she understands her family, has connections, of course, still in Afghanistan, so she was, uh, she knew exactly what needed to be done, and it was just a question of setting up an organisation that could deliver on that. So um, I wasn't involved, I've only just become involved in this organisation, but when I was in the Senate, Nuria knocked on my door very early on and said, you need to know about Afghanistan, you need to know uh, what its needs are, and so that was the beginning of a, a long-standing relationship she and I had. So uh, when I had some space, she and her group invited me to become part of the Committee of Management. So the committee is entirely made up of volunteers, of course, and uh, our program is different from most foreign aid programs in that we focus just on Afghanistan. So uh, most organisations are, are big and provide funds in many countries, but we focus on Afghanistan. We also focus on women and education because we recognise the importance of getting it right there and recognise that a, a very small amount of money in foreign aid terms goes a very long way when you operate the way that, that uh, the Afghan-Australian Development Organisation does. That is to employ local staff, uh, trusted staff in Afghanistan and we have a very small part-time administration officer in Melbourne. But apart from that, all of our money goes into staff in Afghanistan. So it's Afghans delivering services, employment services, to Afghans. Just go back to that first meeting with Noria. What did you learn at that time about Afghanistan? Uh, well, um, Noria had, had uh, as I said, come, come to Australia for, for her training in radiology and she was unable to go back because of the Taliban. So this, we're talking about the, you know, those early days of the fighting in Afghanistan. And so she, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, a powerful argument that we need to do more to assist Afghanistan. And she made that argument, and she, she was very persistent, and she still is. <laughs> and, um, and what she has to say is, uh, is, is I think, you know, very important. So we, we've had many meetings over time. Obviously, when I was in the Senate, I was only on the crossbench, so I wasn't able to hand out money. But when I could, I reported through speeches and so on and they made motions and such in the Senate in order to keep the issue alive. Because I think we can often... And that's the issue is, of course, that ongoing war, 16 years of war, you know, and still continuing, 
the Taliban rule for a very long time and what that did to the country. We tend to think in terms of terrorism and a, a warlike response instead of thinking about what this means for women and children. Many men have been killed as part of the fighting in Afghanistan, but of course it's the women who, who have the children to raise, who have very little by way of education and support. And, you know, your heart just goes out to these women. And, and when I hear the stories from them about what difference it's made for them to have gone through one of our programs and become literate, become numerate, what that means to their lives, honestly, it grabs you because it's, uh, you know, as I said, such little amount of assistance can make huge difference to people's lives. Talk a bit more about the, the women and the girls who have benefited from this program. And particularly, do you have one example of a young girl or a young woman who's told her story? Many. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And, uh, and look, our website, we've, we've filled our website with these because they're so powerful and they're so persuasive and they just tell you about the lives of people. I'll give you a quote from one I've got here um, from Jamila. And uh, I'll have to forgive my pronunciation. The Calais Fays village of the Karabakh district is where she comes from. So one of our programs focuses on women in remote villages who are widows with children and the ones who were denied schooling during the Taliban rule. And she said, uh, I'm married and have four children. My husband died four years ago. I was interested in learning from childhood, but according to tradition, I got married early and could not attend school. Now I am a trainee with this Ardo course. It was my dream to be a literate person, and now I am literate and can read and write. And the story goes on uh, with more detail. And... We have in this, uh, we've had so far in this village skills program that we run, 1,350 women who've come through the program. And what we do with them is teach them literacy and numeracy, but also tailoring and embroidery so that, so that they've got a trade, if you like. And we give them a, a sewing machine at the end of that process and most of them have set up their own small businesses making garments and being able to sell things. So that's an example of the way in which we operate. We identify a need. We work with Afghani people in order to get it right. Although some of, some of these women say to us, we'd like the course to be you know, twice as long as it is so that we could, we could learn much more and we'd love to be able to provide that, but of course we can't. Is there any possibility of, of younger girls getting more training? Well, you know, there is a relatively good school system underway at the present time. Our programs focus on the ones who missed out. There are something like 9 million Afghanis who are illiterate. I don't know the exact breakdown, but... It's a lot. In likelihood, the vast majority of those will be women because girls were denied education with the Taliban. We pick up on those. There is a big school system in the country, um, and one of our other programs addresses the school system. So we have a science teacher uh, training course. The problem with teachers in Afghanistan is that many left under the Taliban rule, so they became our refugees. And so there are a lot of teachers who don't even have any formal qualifications. And when it comes to science, 
of course they're battling to be able to teach at the higher levels of secondary education. So this is a really important program that we run and so far 3,700 teachers have been through the program and what that means is that Afghanistan can deliver on its objective of having science education as a priority. Of course every country needs to have uh, well-trained scientists and you couldn't go to university unless you had, effectively, unless you had uh, year 12 equivalent science education. So, you know, that's a really important program for helping Afghanistan become an educated nation. Is that program also available for women? Yes, yes, and we, it, it is for women and men, but we, we focus on women. Uh, women make up, I'm not sure the exact percentage, but women make up uh, quite a good percentage of teachers and science teachers. And what about the, the development of skills for young men? With, um, we think of them as tradies here. Well, of course, Afghanistan needs tradies like you wouldn't believe. It's, um, you know, so much damage was done to the country during all the conflicts there. We have a, a quite small program. We, we just have um, nine or ten boys each year. These are boys who pretty much live on the streets in Kabul. So they have a very vicarious living doing who knows, who knows what. They've had no education because they were engaged in the fighting very early on as, um, as young boys and so they missed an education and they have no trade as it were. So what we do is uh, we, we take them for a year, we teach them literacy and numeracy and we teach them to become a carpenter. And so far, I think we've had uh, nearly 70 boys go through this program and all of them are now employed or they've set up their, small, their own small business. And part of that training involves making cabinetware, for instance, for government departments. It's a terrific program and, uh, and again, the boys who go through it tell us how important that's been. It means they can support their families, very often a widowed mother, and uh, large families or, or not and uh, for them to be able to both read and um, they have basic mathematics as well and also to have a trade just makes a world of difference and there is no other way in which these young men can get an education because in Afghanistan you have to be in school in order to go on to a trade uh, certificate and really, the whole education system in Afghanistan, like their infrastructure more broadly, whilst money is being poured into this, there's, there can never be enough because there's so much to catch up on from so many, war, so many years of war. Is it also that you have to support these young men, these young boys or young men, through that whole year because they would be earning some money on the streets? They go into education, that, yes, that is give, cut off? We, yes, indeed. We give them a small stipend. I can't tell you what it is in Australian dollars, but let me you know, it's quite, it is quite small. We give them um, a midday lunch, so we have a, have a kitchen and staff there who do that, and we give them a small allowance for travel. And, and we do the same thing for our village women. They are not able to travel large distances. They just don't have the money to do these things. So most of our programs 
take that into consideration. How do we get people there? It's not so much an incentive as to, as you say, replace what small income they might have derived to that point. It's just to make their lives, make it possible really for them to do the course. Talk a bit more about the trainers. Yes, well, our, our trainers in various courses and I might, I might say I haven't actually met them myself. I haven't myself. I haven't been to Afghanistan yet, but I'm told they're very skilled people. They are people who very much know, well networked, and know what's going on in Kabul. That's where our, our training centre is in Kabul, and so they operate in a very safe manner because they are so well networked. So they can simply close down if there seems to be some trouble emerging. So in that sense, they are very careful people who, um, who keep themselves and the people that, who come into our programs safe. I don't know about their qualifications. That's, uh, that's something I can't report on, but from all accounts, because our programs are so successful, I would assume that they are well qualified. The science teacher higher qualifications course is run in conjunction with the Department of Education. So we use, their, we use their trainers to be part of that program. I'm sorry, I can't say more about our, our staff, as, as I say, having not met them as yet, but uh, they're very dedicated, very hard-working people, and uh, they do a good job. Do you also work in with other NGOs in Afghanistan? No, we tend to... This tends to be a program that we do. We obviously have lots of partners in Afghanistan, including including the Ministry of Education. So we are very well connect, connected with networks, but we don't actually work with um, an agency. We don't receive government funding, Australian government funding at all. Uh, and that's because we're a small organisation and if you, to receive government funding, you need to be accredited, which means you've got to be quite large. So we operate independently. We quite like that, but um, <laughs> it would be good to have a more secure source of funding. At the present time, we rely on generous Australian philanthropists or just ordinary people who donate money on a regular basis. And as I say, uh, we can operate on a relatively small budget to um, be sure that the money that's donated um, goes to a good cause. We don't allow any form of corruption in every poor country in the world. Corruption is typically rife, and so it is in Afghanistan. I think they're getting a handle on it, but we make it very clear that that, that, uh, that corruption is not an option for our programs or the way in which we use our money in Afghanistan. How much do you believe it would cost to take someone out of that life of um, real dire poverty? Say one of the, the science teachers and the, and the ones that they're teaching, what would you spend? Oh, now that's a good question and I don't have that at my... T- fingertips. The science education course is probably per capita a quite expensive one um, in the initial stages. I'm sorry, I can't answer that question exactly, but, but 3,700 teachers have so far graduated. 
and that, that, that's probably a fairly expensive program. However, those teachers go on to teach others in their own schools. So, you know, it's hard, it's very hard to be able to quantify exactly how much the dollars spent um, deliver in terms of outcomes, but we're very confident that it's, it's a good deal. And literacy, likewise, is probably per capita uh, uh, the next one in terms of expense. And but the village village schools program is very very inexpensive. Um, so we travel out to those remote villages and teach these programs. And as I say, that's um, that's relatively inexpensive. I'm just thinking about the equipment you need for science and also tools and things for carpentry. Yes, you're right. Those, that's one of the reasons that those two programs are funded at a higher level. Carpentry, obviously, you need saws and all sorts of things. Um, and, the, and we also give the boys a small carpentry kit at the end of that process. But at the end of the day, you know, it's staff wages that are usually the biggest cost with programs, overseas aid programs. And our staff are paid in Afghan wages. They're paid relatively well compared with other Afghans, but nonetheless, it's still a, it's a lot lower wage than, of course, we receive in Australia. And some of the trainers are volunteers. Not in Afghanistan. We employ we employ our staff in Afghanistan, but in Australia, the committee, of course, is voluntary, and we. We have had um, a lot of people in Melbourne working as volunteers. We run a number of events, including uh, Nowroz, which is the New Year celebration, which is very big in Afghanistan, and that's on the 21st of March, so we'll be having a big function there. Have a look at our website for that. So, yes, we have a very strong volunteer component in Australia, but, uh, but no, we pay wages to people in Afghanistan. And if people want to help with the work financially? Oh, well, we would very much welcome that. We have a website, so the Afghan-Australian Development Organisation is a good website. It will tell you, tell people about our three programs and uh, a very easy click-on donation arrangement. And you can, obviously, it suits us best to have donations that are monthly and ongoing. That way we can plan our work well ahead but uh, but of course anything is uh, is welcome and uh, it just means we can expand our programs and continue them so the the problem with relying on philanthropy can often be that you have funding for a set period of time and once that runs out you need to then um, fund money um, from other sources there's nothing unusual about that for little not-for-profit organizations but um, we would certainly welcome a regular donation to our effort. Okay, thanks, Lynn. Pleasure. I think we probably covered it all. I'll say that um, we should be reminding ourselves that Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries on earth. Um, it has the worst infant mortality rate. It has child labour. But it's also climbing out of all of that, and, uh, and I, it's good to be part of the recovery of Afghanistan. And that was Lynn Allison, former senator for the Australian Democrats, now working with the Australian, the Afghan Australian Development Organisation. And that's where you can go to the webpage if you'd like to assist them with their work. It's 22 minutes past five. Songs of Africa. 
Join 3CR for our Invasion Day broadcast on January 26th. Tune into 3CR between 11am and 4pm for our Treaty Now special broadcasts. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land and Aboriginal law. Two important events took place in the last month of 2017, events which our governments ignored. The first, the 100th anniversary of the victory against conscription during World War I. The second, the awarding of the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which started in Melbourne when the Medical Association of the Prevention of War recognised that nuclear weapons, the very worst of the weapons of mass destruction, were still legitimate. This contrasted with chemical weapons, biological weapons, cluster musicians, landmines, even dum-dum bullets, which all have been made illegal by UN Treaty with impressive results. The award ceremony was held in Oslo, Norway on Human Rights Day, December the 10th, and a number of the co-founders of ICANN were present, one being Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. Tillman, paint a picture of the venue where the award ceremony took place and the people who attended. Well, it was really quite uh, magical. Oslo's a very beautiful harbourside city. It's not very big. It's sort of spread around hills. You know, you can take a subway and in 10 minutes you're up. You can be cross-country skiing up in the mountains. It's a very beautiful city and the Peace Prize really takes it over and the whole city seems to embrace it, you know, very warmly. So all the major venues uh, that are related to the the official Nobel Prize Award activities are are quite close within the walking distance of each other. So the Grand Hotel where the banquet is and the laureates stay, the City Hall where the the main awards ceremony happens, the Nobel Peace Centre itself, you know, they're all within a stone's throw of each other. The torchlight procession that proceeds up uh, from the main square in front of the station to outside the Grand Hotel and the mall that leads up to the to the Royal Pub is you know is a short walk. The huge Ferris wheel that's in the the park down the main strip between the Parliament and the Royal Palace had a huge ICANN a Nobel Peace Prize logo in the middle of it for those days. So it was really an, an extraordinarily welcoming and atmosphere where really the whole city. You know, in the winter cold with very short daylight, it sort of got light at about you know, 9.30 vaguely and then sort of was pretty much dark by, by you know, 3.30, quarter to 4. But um, quite magical because of the sort of Christmas lead-up anyway, so Christmas markets and lots of lights and candles everywhere. So it really was a very special time to be in Oslo. And because it's the only one of the Nobel Prizes that's decided and awarded in Norway, all of the rest being uh, awarded in Sweden. I think they make a particular effort to make it a, a significant event and um, and arguably the, the Peace Prize is probably the most widely lauded and acknowledged um, of the Nobel Awards unless you're in the, you know, the scientific fields for the others. But um, overall in terms of global 
public prominence, I think the Peace Prize probably uh, takes the and, and Oslo certainly uh, makes it very special. And I believe the party went on for quite a few days. It did. There's, there's a series of events that virtually take over the city for, for a couple of days. The official events include uh, a press conference that the Nobel Institute runs the day before the award ceremony on the 9th, then, and there are various other events with, with kids, with political meetings, with everybody in the government and the parliament pretty much. And then there's the award ceremony itself on the 10th uh, at lunchtime. Then there's a, a series of subsequent press conference detailed interviews that um, were done by BBC, Norwegian National Broadcaster and by Al Jazeera, sort of extended interviews with capacity for, for people to join. Uh, and, and then there's the banquet uh, on the Sunday, the 10th, December evening, the next day there was a Nobel Forum, which this year was on Indigenous rights and, and resources uh, hosted by the Guatemalan Indigenous Nobel Peace Laureate, Rigoberto Menchu, which was a terrific occasion for the, the Indigenous Australian test survivors that were there, Sue Common, Hasseldean and, and, and her family, to meet people in similar situations and people from the uh, Nunets indigenous people in Novaya Semlaya in northern Russia who had also been displaced by Russian nuclear tests. So some t contacts that, that came out of that. So the, it's really three days of, of events. And then, of course, there is, there's the big concert on the Monday which fills the largest uh, stadium in, um, in Oslo. Uh, it was really quite an extraordinary event this time and included um, John Legend playing on one of the few pianos that survived the nuclear bombing in Hiroshima that's been very lovingly restored by a man who was there to watch it being played. Uh, so, yeah, it's a pretty special time over, over several days. And there is a, a certain amount of irony, isn't it, because Nobel was a, a weapons manufacturer, amongst other things that he did? He was. He, he's really best known for having invented gunpowder really and having commercialised it at scale so he had a chemistry background and did various other very enterprising um, sort of businessman as well as having some chemistry now and in fact he thought that because with his invention war had become so destructive he was hopeful that civilised nations as he said would, would turn away from war that war would become too destructive and that civilised nations wouldn't, would no longer embark on war now that it was possible to cause such widespread destruction with, um, uh, with explosives. So, unfortunately, a rather forlorn hope, but uh, I guess it was partly... Um, I mean, his motivations are hard to dissect and have been widely, um, widely examined, but I think there's no doubt that there was a hope that a concern on his part that he wanted to offset some of the potential harm that, that he had done to the world by by inventing explosives by the Peace Prize, uh, which was, you know, to celebrate major contributions to peace among nations, fraternity among nations, um, peace congresses and progress towards disarmament. But it has been a very enduring uh, legacy for which we, we really must thank him. What happens with the money? Because there are groups in many, many countries. How is it distributed? Or how will it be distributed? Yeah, the prize money is, 
It's, I think each year now it's, it's nine million Swedish kroner, so it's a, about one and a half million Australian dollars. Uh, so that's obviously an extraordinarily welcome contribution, uh, to ICANN funds. ICANN, um, runs really on a shoestring budget, both in Australia and, and globally with very lean numbers of staff. I mean, our international staff team is, is, is four people spread between uh, Geneva and, and Melbourne. It's pretty small. It's very lean. And, uh, so an enormous, um, boost to what's possible and the resources that are that are in hand. Most of it will be allocated to, to a fund that we're calling a thousand day f- and seeking other contributions to, to, to really try and have a target of a thousand days to get the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, this historic nuclear weapons prohibition treaty that was by 122 nations at the UN last July into force within a thousand days. We think that's a realistic goal and really the, the funds will be to help campaigners around the world uh, help to get that historic treaty into force. That's the first thing we need to do to implement it and that requires 50 states to sign, the 56 have signed to date, but, um, but to go through all the constitutional and parliamentary processes that they need to do to ratify it. And then the whole, uh, it becomes um, binding international law on those that have signed it and then the whole sort of cycle of uh, meetings, of regular meetings of the, the countries that join it will, will kick off and its political and moral force uh, will ramp up very substantially once it actually enters into force. So that's, that's really the first priority for, for use of the funds. And I'm sure it was well noted at Oslo that the country which started ICANN was a, the the Peace Prize was opposed by the government of that country, which is Australia. Yes, and the Norwegian government also has um, you know has has taken a regrettable step backwards. So yes, it was a rather more controversial prize than than they often are. In some respects, with, as you mentioned, the Australian government, uh, you would think that the first Nobel Peace Prize awarded to an organisation with its origins in Australia would merit, you know, significant recognition and some celebration uh, at the national level and some congratulations, uh, which haven't really been forthcoming either from uh, the Prime Minister or the Leader of the Opposition. So a bit disappointing. But similarly, at the there's a disappointing turn in, in Norway, which in many ways led the humanitarian initiatives that developed the, uh, the Ban Treaty by hosting the first of the intergovernmental conferences, the first ever government conferences to focus on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons in 2013. And that was clearly then, you know, leading towards the succession of events that, that the treaty negotiated. The Norwegian government was also a very significant financial supporter of, of ICANN and in fact the Norwegian government has for many years been the largest single supporter of civil society disarmament work on all fronts. So a government that really had understood the value of governments and civil society working together, that took the lead in developing the treaty that bans cluster munitions which is known as the Oslo Treaty, and then with the change of government in 2015, 
basically stopped that funding overnight and and pretty much um, fell into line with its NATO, the pressures from NATO. So the current Norwegian government doesn't support the ban treaty despite very strong public and parliamentary support for it with the main opposition parties in Norway firmly saying that they will sign the ban when next they're in office. So interesting situation in Norway. It was it was quite um, pleasing, in fact, at the concert, which was packed out about um, 8,000 people in the Telenor Stadium. One of the themes that was really very strongly raised during the concert and which met very wide resonance uh, amongst the audience was disappointment that Norway was not an early supporter of the ban treaty and, and hoped that that, that that would change. And certainly the, the award of the prize to ICANN is very much hoped by the Nobel Institute and this was clear throughout all of the events that it's not just recognition for the important work that, that's been achieved. Um, it's very productive collaboration between civil society and governments to get the treaty in over the line and to promote much wider awareness of the catastrophic consequences of any use of nuclear weapons, but really awarded in the hope that the prize will will actually help the work, will raise the profile, will encourage people and governments to, to keep pushing and do more and, and, and actually improve uh, the treaty, especially you know, the hard work that needs to be done to get the states that really don't support it, that those that have and claim to rely on nuclear weapons, to join it. At present, it's really the only path that's that's clear, that's mapped out, that's there, uh, that the world can take to, to step back from the brink and, and, and get rid of nuclear weapons. There's no other option on the table, really. So there was a very strong sense that... Um, through the, all the events around the prize, very strong. It helped to build the pressure on the Norwegian government. The, the Norwegian Prime Minister was was clearly not comfortable at various points during the award ceremony in relation to what was being said, and the response from the public at the um, at the concert was really quite quite powerful. There's no doubt that the that the prize is is helpful in terms of shining a spotlight and getting some movement and, and political attention as well. Nevertheless, there must be concerns that uh, the news in the last couple of days that the US is to loosen nuclear weapons constraints and develop more so-called usable warheads. Yeah, there's, I think we're really in a, a race and, you know, it's, it's the fight of our lives, literally. You know, as, as the, the speech at the award ceremony from Beatrice Finn, the ICANN Executive Director, uh, I think very simply and but plainly put it, you know, it's either the end of nuclear weapons or the end of us, and th- those are the only two options. So there is, on the one hand, really growing nuclear dangers. I think that's widely that the risk of of nuclear war is is increasing, is probably as high as it's ever been, if not higher. And we've seen an extraordinary level of really extreme and very explicit and escalating threats to actually use nuclear weapons. I mean, completely contrary to international law, contrary to the United Nations Charter from President Trump and and, and also Kim Jong-un from North Korea most blatantly. So real concerns and and a real risk that this sort of sabre-rattling that's accompanied by aggressive exercising and military 
deployments that puts um, everything on edge um, could very easily spill over by some cascade of unintended escalation and misinterpretation or deliberately result in, in a war that could very readily go, go nuclear, which would be an absolute global catastrophe. And that's, of course, the most acute nuclear danger that's apparent at, at present. But, you know, all around the world, the, the level of explicit threat about possible use of nuclear weapons has not just been happened between North Korea and, and the United States, but in relation to China in the South China Sea, between India and Pakistan, a really worrying escalation with short-range missiles and early-use policies in Pakistan in particular. The East remains a, a continuing powder keg, and even between NATO and Russia, in Crimea most obviously, but, you know, we're seeing aggressive military deployments and exercising sabre-rattling on both sides, Vladimir Putin, Prime Minister May in the United Kingdom also making quite explicit nuclear threats in a way that we really haven't seen since the end of the Cold War. So it's a dangerous situation and frankly if nuclear weapons are retained they will at some point be used and we're absolutely in a race against time to diminish that prospect and to get rid of them before before that can happen. We really have these sort of two opposite trends, if you like. On the one hand, the risks are growing and the danger getting worse. And in part, that's the reason that's, that's prompted so much concern and alarm that has motivated countries and civil society to work together to get this ban treaty process moving, which has now had major achievement, which is making the nuclear armed states and their allies extremely uncomfortable. And they're really trying to oppose very fiercely because it threatens that monopoly that they claim to threaten the existence of us all with some unique right. So, it's you know, we, we need to make sure that uh, nuclear weapons, the risk of their use is, is diminished and, and they're eliminated before something terrible does happen, which, which it will if, if, if we don't get rid of them. You're listening to Associate Professor Tilman Ruff, one of the co-founders of the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. He's been speaking about his time in Oslo, Norway, for the presentations. Next, the second part of his overseas trip. You travelled to South Korea before you arrived here. What was the feeling there? Who were you speaking with and, and what area of South Korea did you travel to? We had quite an extraordinary uh, visit to uh, to South Korea just before Christmas. I went with um, with my wife as a physician as well and also with Tim Wright, the Asia-Pacific director of ICANN Melbourne-based. We were invited by a grouping of the governor of the Gangwon province, which is hosting the Winter Olympics next month, some members including the Speaker of the Korean National Assembly, so the National Parliament, and a private foundation called the Sunful Movement, which originally started as an anti-cyberbullying movement. Cyberbullying's been a huge concern in, in Korea. It's the most wired country on earth, the highest levels use, and there have been a number of, quite a number of, of, of suicides among young people directly related to cyberbullying. So, so this has important traction and um, is an important problem there as it is in other is in other places too. But this foundation 
is also broadening its activities to work for peace and and clearly there's a lot of concern in South Korea about the saber rattling that's going on and about the dangers of what's still an unresolved conflict since 1953 when the Korean War ended. It ended with an armistice, not a not a peace treaty. So they really wanted some Nobel laureates to visit Korea to talk about the need for for peace, uh, the absolute need to avoid another war on the Korean Peninsula and to promote uh, the Winter Olympics as an opportunity to try and reduce tensions, resume contacts between North and South Korea, have North Korean athletes participate, which has happened, always happening, thankfully, and use the opportunity of the Olympics to, to really make them a peace Olympics, to contribute to peace on the Korean Peninsula and to a world free of nuclear weapons. Because South Korea is a US ally that claims to rely on US nuclear weapons for its protection like Australia, it didn't join the negotiations and it hasn't signed the treaty banning nuclear weapons. So there's not been a lot of awareness amongst either the parliamentarians or the public in South Korea about the banned treaty. So we were we were very happy to, to point to this as really a, a very significant possible solution not just to the global problem of nuclear weapons, but to the tensions in in the Korean Peninsula. So we had quite an extraordinary series of meetings. With uh, we were received in the national parliament. We had very well attended and well reported press conferences with the local and the the foreign media. We delivered a statement calling for uh, the things that I mentioned. Um, at the demilitarised zone that we issued with the governor of Gangwon province, which is the province that's hosting the Olympics. It's right on the border between north and south. It's actually been split by the border. So it used to extend across where the border is. And that was a, yeah, a really um, significant occasion to, to visit the demilitarised zone, look out across that border that divides the, the Peninsula, the most heavily landmined part of the world and see basically the same country, you know, that should be united. So it was it was a very widely reported and, and, and well received and, and uh, from our point of view an extremely uh, productive visit to, to really talk up the, the importance of the Ban Treaty as a pathway in all parts of the world to, to reduce tension and get rid of nuclear weapons. And a bit of light relief with your dress-up for the... Oh, we did, yes, also have the honour of sort of not something we would normally accustomed to doing of uh, donning very sporty uh, official Winter Olympic outfits because they're the Winter Olympics. They're, they're very warm and complete with, um, with beanies and mittens um, and scarves. So we were able to carry the Olympic torch on part of its, uh, part of its relay on the way to the start of the Games and uh, also convey the message of that there mustn't be war on in Korea and that uh, the ban treaty was the way forward to get rid of nuclear weapons. And you get to bring the uniform home with you, I hear. And we did get to bring the uniform home with us, which were big uh, as uh, Santa's helpers at family Christmas. <laughs> we did have the extraordinary generosity of being given the the Olympic torches that we, that we carried after they'd been suited defuelled of their flammable materials. So we're now the proud owners of, uh, of Olympic torches. Just staying in the region for a few minutes, Japan is set to restart 
the giant nuclear plant. It's on the west coast of Japan. It's the biggest in the world, I believe. It's a similar plant to the Fukushima development there, isn't it? Yes, this is um, Kashiwazaki Kariwa, which is the world's largest nuclear plant. As you mentioned, there are seven nuclear reactors at that site. It's owned and run by TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, the same company that um, ran the Fukushima plants that blew up with its record of of corruption and falsification of, of safety data. The plant also had quite a severe accident in 2007 when it was affected by by an earthquake and although there there weren't major radiation releases, there was quite extensive damage to the infrastructure on sites. There are extraordinary images of, of roads on the site just being buckled like a piece of cloth, just waving up and down and the plant was shut for about a year and a half after that in 2007. So it's on the China and Korea side of Japan facing um, the Japan Sea or the Japanese call it the Japan Sea and it's been mothballed like almost all of the uh, the reactors in Japan the 2011 Fukushima disaster the reactors are basically the same design as um, boiling water reactors um, as the uh, ones at the Fukushima uh, Daiichi plant that suffered the catastrophe it's received national level regulatory approval for a restart which is not actually scheduled till next year 2019 and you know it's not certain that that will happen there's still some hurdles to go through it's in Niigata prefecture and um, you know last year uh, the people of Niigata elected as a governor somebody who's clearly opposed to plant restarting and to nuclear power in general and uh, and polls at the time showed that three-quarters of, of voters opposed restarting this plant. It's got some serious issues. I mean, there have been about $6 billion, I believe, uh, spent on post-Fukushima sort of modifications to make it um, safer. They've built a 50-metre seawall. They've increased the emergency water storage. They've introduced vents on the reactors so that if there is a meltdown at least the radioactive particles won't just freely vent to the atmosphere as they did in the Fukushima accident because you know money had been saved on not putting in filters so the safety of the plant has been improved but it's but it's fundamentally the same design highly seismically active area you know with a significant earthquake affecting the plant just a decade ago it's also the region with the heaviest snowfall in Japan. So in winter there's there's sometimes several metres of snow a day uh, that fall there. I've been there. It's quite extraordinary. You can you basically can't walk. If you walk out, the snow will be above your head on many days during winter. So if there were an accident during the winter, it would make response and evacuation extremely difficult. There are about almost half a million people who live within 30 kilometres of that of that plant, which is sort of more people than lived within that radius of the Fukushima plant. So it's still fraught. I mean, there's there's been um, ambitious plans to restart more plants in Japan. Five have sort of been restarted uh, to date, but this would be, would be the largest and the first 
other plant owned by TEPCO that would that would restart, but it's certainly not there yet. And there's been some very interesting development also at the national political level with sort of the the reconstitution of the main opposition party, the Democratic Party that was in power when the Fukushima disaster happened. The Prime Minister then Naoto Khan since his experience of trying to deal with that disaster has become an absolutely solid advocate for Japan getting out of, of nuclear power. And he's been joined by uh, a couple of former prime ministers on the conservative side who are also now very actively proposing that Japan immediately exit nuclear power. You know, they've proven since 2011 when they essentially went cold turkey and shut down all of their nuclear power plants pretty much overnight. There have been no significant power shortages in Japan since that time. You know, they really don't need those nuclear plants. That's obvious, especially if they got in any way about renewables, which they're starting to do. So they really don't need them. There are some really interesting developments and some quite powerful people who are really pushing for Japan to get out of nuclear power decisively. And I think the prospects of of that have, have certainly improved uh, in recent months. And I imagine that the people of Japan would be aware that there's been very little progress on the damaged reactors? I think there's a lot less awareness than there should be. There's still, I mean, this sort of nuclear village that was described, you know, this sort of collusive and corrupt enmeshed relationships between government, nuclear operators and the regulators that really led to design problems that very seriously caused and exacerbated the Fukushima disaster and that meant that there had been no effective preparations uh, in the event of an accident, really has survived. And they've really tried to sort of hunker down, you know, uh, bide their time, let this blow over, hope that people will forget, you know, try and restore a semblance of normality in Fukushima. There's this lifting of the evacuation orders from most of the um, from the largest regions that were designated for evacuation that's now happened very few people have gone back but they've really tried to to present they're really trying to present this the Fukushima situation as having sort of back to normal and I think with trying really trying to do that before the Tokyo Olympics in 2020 and so you know the media in Japan isn't generally particularly bold and and uh, and forthright. There's a lot of cronyism. There's still uh, a lot of the the person, Professor Kurokawa, who chaired the Parliament's first ever independent investigation commission into the Fukushima disaster, has basically repeatedly said since that you know nothing has really fundamentally changed in terms of the, the nuclear industry and what would be needed to to reform it really hasn't happened. So there's a lot of distrust of government. That was an obvious early casualty of the disaster, the way that it was mismanaged and communication was, you know, people weren't told what was going on. There's been a lot of distrust in government that, uh, you know, hasn't recovered. But there's actually not that much uh, coverage in Japan the ongoing problems in Fukushima. So I think people know, people are deeply suspicious that it's not all well as the government claims but in terms of detail it's, there's actually a lot of the key information that people would need you know in terms of 
what's happening with thyroid cancer, you know, in children in Fukushima, what's what are the the health impacts have simply the information simply hasn't been collected. So there is a lot of still sort of cover up and denial. Um, the government still maintains these appalling radiation safety standards that you know that worse nowhere no other government in the world has said that it's okay to just arbitrarily increase the the maximum permissible level of radiation for the population 20-fold as a matter of you know basically a political matter to try and reduce the evacuation and and compensation bill they still haven't changed that and that's absolutely a lie <laughs> you know that that's not evidence-based at all that puts people at significant risk so there's still a very problematic situation in relation to the ongoing disaster you know it's going to take decades to try and deal with and stabilize there's still significant contamination there are still significant risks of further contamination from the plant they've certainly made some progress in in particular removing the fuel from the damaged um, fuel ponds which was probably the most acute risk on the site remaining but you know it's going to be decades if ever that they're going to be able to stabilize those reactors and remove the molten fuel that's gone out the bottom and is contaminating water still um, so this is very much unfinished business and it's, I think it's really important that the rest of us don't let the Fukushima issues be swept under the carpet and forgotten there was Australian uranium in each of those reactors. We have a very direct responsibility for, for what happened there. Tillman, it's the Japanese people who are paying the price of all this with their health and it's the, the government who's picking up the tabs for the repairs and the decommissioning, is that correct? Yes, essentially the, you know, the costs which the government of the disaster, which the government has now estimated will be about 200 billion US dollars you know, independent estimates suggest that it'll be at least two or three times higher than that. So, you know, half a trillion dollars thereabouts in total cost. That's basically, you know, in the end going to be paid by people through taxes or higher electricity, all of which, you know, could be, could have been used to basically put Japan on, on a firm path of renewables and, and um, such a disastrous but that, that, you know, that legacy has to be dealt with now. There's no, no way around it. Thank you. A pleasure. And that's Nobel Peace Prize Laureate, Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, speaking about his time in Oslo and also his time in South Korea. Well, that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.